When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Acast Recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favourite shows. And this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and I recently had a baby with Ed Miliband. A baby podcast, that is. It's a spin-off of our show, Reasons to be Cheerful. It's called Cheerful Book Club, and it's conversations with some of the best writers working in the world today. You'll really enjoy our chats with people like US broadcasting legend Rachel Maddow, literary giant Ian McEwan, and the big short and moneyball author Michael Lewis. Feed your brain with ideas from the Cheerful Book Club. You'll find us on the excellent Acast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from Ireland and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm Andrew Musgrove and welcome to another episode of Gibbo's Corner. We're going to talk about a man who as a player and manager of Newcastle United defines what it means to be a legend for this club. We're going to split the episode into two parts because there is so much to talk about. The man in question is Kevin Keegan. Sit back and enjoy part one. This month's episode is about a man who first came as a player, uh, a player nearing the end of his game, but won the hearts and minds of the Geordie public and then came back as manager, not once but twice, and still remains a legend. He arguably defined the word excitement in the Premier League era. Um, it is Kevin Keegan. This is the Everything is Black and White podcast. And um, hello, Gibbo. Welcome. Hi. Smashing to be here. Um, so we've picked a man, a legend of the game, um, not just at Newcastle, but a legend uh, in Liverpool, in, in, in England International, who you know was brilliant. Of course, he went over to Hamburg as well. European Football of the Air twice. Loads of uh, honours to his name. But for the people of Tyneside, it was really when he arrived. It was it wasn't a good time for no. Newcastle, and he was kind of the, the shining light, um, the kind of the man they needed. It, it was quite incredible when he. It was August '82 when he, when he came and joined us. Unbelievable. Newcastle were very much in the doldrums. If we think we've got a few dark clouds hanging over us today, it was a lot worse in those days because they were near the bottom of the second division, not the uh, the Premier League. Um, we were going nowhere. We were in trouble with the bank. Uh, the crowd was depressed. This guy had won every honour, as you've said, in the game. He was the current England captain of the national side and the idea of him coming to a club outside of the top flight was ridiculous um, going back to the actual start of it I'd been approached by Joe Harvey after Bill McGarry had got the sack at Newcastle Joe was still very much involved behind the scenes and he said look there's a guy called Arthur Cox down at Chesterfield I think you know him I did know him because he, he had been Sunderland's number two to Bob Stokoe when Sunderland won the cup in the fairy tale and he said we would like him to come here um, but we don't know if you'd be keen we don't want to go through the front door in case we're going to get a knockback off Arthur can you see what you do now 
it was a privileged position to be in, but I give Arthur a ring. I said, look, would you fancy coming back to the northeast? You've worked up here, working for Newcastle. Absolutely jumped at the chance. Um, and he arrived in Newcastle. Now, he's an amazing character in himself because he was a sergeant major type of guy. Uh, loved his fitness, had a, 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 a cut in the jib of a, of a SAS fella. Um, mad as can be. I remember after he left Newcastle, went to Derby County, tried to sign Budgie, John Birds, the Newcastle goalkeeper that had been up here. Tried to sign him, got him down to Derby County to the baseball ground for talks in his office. Talked to him for over an hour. Budgie was showing a little bit reluctance to go to Derby. He said, look, I'm going to go and get something I want to show you. Went outside his office and locked the door behind him. So he locked Budgie in his office so Budgie couldn't escape. Budgie went over to the window because he was daft and all. Managed to open it. He climbed out the window, ran up, got in his car to drive off home. He come back with a pot of tea, uh, Coxie to pour a cup of tea for him, saw that he'd gone, ran out on the road, Budgie had to go up to the top, to a roundabout, turn round the roundabout and come back past the ground. And as he passed, Arthur threw the teapot at his car. <laughs> as he left, he disappeared. He was intensely crackers, whereas Budgie was just crackers. Um, now, this guy had decided, what can I do to lift Newcastle? We're so much in the doldrums, and he believed with a passion, what we all believe, give Newcastle fans a hero, somebody to get behind, and it will lift the club. Newcastle has never had anybody like that since uh, Supermac and in the old days, Jackie Milburn, etc., etc. He had done his homework and he was persistent. A year before we signed Keegan, uh, Coxie had gone out for lunch with a bloke called Harry Swales, who was one of the first football agents before when he deepened them now. But he was one of the first, and inevitably his star, um, uh, his star client was Keegan. And he'd said to him, look, if Kevin ever becomes available, we would love to be in for him. He didn't have Newcastle's permission. He was just doing it as a manager. Then the word on the grapevine was... Uh, he was at Southampton and, you know, he'd had the passion, Keegan, in playing at Liverpool in front of the cop. Passionate people like the Geordies and he was used to that passion. He was now playing at Southampton, which was so much more sedate, even though they were a very good side, finished second top of the table, but much more sedate set up than the... And he knew the passion up here. The word was that he was looking for out at Southampton. He'd had enough. He always had wanderlust anyway, Keegan. The whole of his career, including managerial, he's never settled for more than three and four years in one place. Then he gets twitchy feet and he's off, he's off somewhere else. Um, so Newcastle learned that uh, there, there was a fixed fee in Keegan's contract, £100,000. His problem then was going to be wages before they made it. Newcastle were clever enough that the official sponsor at the time was Newcastle Brewers and a fellow called Alistair Wilson who... Loved his football, was a Scot. Um, and uh, they approached him and said, look, can you help? We can't afford Keegan, but if you can put a deal together in sponsorship to go with our wages, the overall price, we might be able to get him. Um, that nothing at this stage had come out in the press, but uh, Newcastle went and had a very private meeting. There was a lot of rumours, but nothing substantiated. Private meeting in London to see if it was possible, and indeed it was possible. Uh, however, Southampton 
were committed to playing a pre-season friendly in Holland. They were playing against Utrecht. And at that time, they got 15,000 quid, which doesn't sound like an awful lot of money, but it was decent doing that day, for playing the friendly. But they only got it if Kevin Keegan was in the team. So Kevin Keegan had to be there. He was away to play in that friendly. By now, dribs and drabs were getting out and speculation in the press suggesting could Keegan be on his way back to England? Manchester United were the other club in from. Uh, high profile, huge, of course. Uh, and there was no confirmation from Newcastle United or from Keegan or from Southampton, but the rumours were swirling round. At this stage, we at the, at the Cron knew we had to do something. Um, we'd heard the persistent rumours. We couldn't nail it down. We couldn't get somebody to say yes or no. That it was always a perhaps, a perhaps. Now, I knew Laurie Mack, the manager of Southampton, very well because he's a jolly lad out of Gateshead. Um, and he'd been at my 21st birthday party at the uh, Egyptian Cottage, which is just outside Tainty's studios. Um, and he attended the party because he was he was with Gateshead. He was a coach at Gateshead at the time. Uh, so I thought I'll try to get a hold of Lowy Mack and he can tip me the wink. So I managed to find out the hotel, Southampton Way, and get through to the hotel. But as far as I got was through to the room of John Mortimer, who was Lowy Mack's number two at Southampton. Everybody was chasing Lowy Mack because of the want to nail Keegan one way or another. John Mortimer said, look, Gibbo, it's more than my life's worth. I can't comment on it. Can't say a word. Lowy's not here. Now, you know then, Andrew, when, when he says can't say a word, you know there's something in it because he would just blow it out the water if it wasn't going to happen. So that only makes you more agitated because you know there's something there. Couldn't get anywhere. Hung up half an hour to addition time. Just sitting down thinking, how the heck can I write a speculation piece that goes far enough but doesn't actually tell you anything? When the phone rang... And I picked up the phone while I irritated Rank because I hadn't time to pick it up. I said, hello, hello. And so was, is that John Gibson? I said, yeah. He says, hello, you. I said, hello, you. And it was Lowy McManamy who was phoning. Mortimer had told him. Lowy was phoning me. He was in the airport flying back after the game with Southampton. Um, but he wanted to give me the call. He said, look, I've got to be quick. He's putting coins in a coin box the whole time. There was no such thing as... Uh, mobile phones in those days, his coins and boxes, and keep going, beep, 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 and that coin dropped. He, kept, he said, look, Kevin, he's on the way to Newcastle, he's on the British Caledonian flight, it uh, gets in at 10 to 12. He said, Newcastle have got a, they're putting together a press conference at Gosford Park Hotel for about tea time. If you meet the 10 to 12 in Newcastle, King will be getting off, got to go. Now that's called friendship and that's called contacts and I'd be forever grateful to Lowy, who's still with us, bless him, in his 80s, living down in the Southampton area. Fabulous, fabulous bloke. Um, and we were there to meet him coming off the plane, to have the photographs, um, to know, be ahead of the field with the press conference, to break the story officially uh, long before the guy actually touched down in Newcastle. And... Um, the excitement within the town was phenomenal. It was August the 19th, 1982. Uh, press conference, Gosford Park Hotel. The secretary of the club at the time was a guy called Russell Cushing, who was quite a reserved character and not very excitable, etc., etc. And he walked into the room and he'd come out with a phrase which was lovely for headline writers, but rather uncomfortable saying it, where in heaven we've got Kevin, he said. And then out come Kevin Gagan, Stancy Moore Jr., 
the son of the the guy that won the cup three times in the fifties, uh, said it's an occasion which will stand out in Newcastle United's history, and it was exactly that. Um, ama- amazing time. Can you just paint a picture for the fans, especially mm. those that weren't around at that, that time? Sure. Just how bad it really was, because Newcastle weren't in a good place. They, need, oh. they needed a lift. They were in a dreadful place. Um, we just lost on a Saturday prior five two at Oxford. We were hurtling towards the bottom of the second division, the championship as it is now, for a club of this size. Uh, staggering. We had a World Cup winner as manager, Ozzy Ordiles, who was a terrific footballer but not that great a manager, and he had looked at what he had at Newcastle, decided that he hadn't any quality and that he was going to play kids. And all the kids to this day remain grateful for his time because he gave them the opportunity. But we were scoring two and letting in five as they did at Oxford. That's the way it was. Um, and the, the whole thing meant... Sorry, that story's when Keegan come again. Can you do that out? I'm do that again, we'll do that, yeah. That story's when Keegan come as a manager. Uh, So if you just go back to, um, if we just go back to talking about what it was like at Newcastle, and I'll pick up from there. That was how bad it was when he came as a player. And that's when he came as a manager, how bad it was. Right, so I'll ask you about when he came as a player. As a player. Tell me when you're ready. Uh, So can you explain, for those who maybe weren't around when he joined as a player, just how bad it was at Newcastle at that time? But horrendous. Newcastle had been relegated um, under Bill McGarry, who had come in really to, to smash player power within Newcastle. And, and Bill managed it. It's like knocking down a wall with a, with a sledgehammer. It's easy to knock down. It's not quite so easy to build. And he wasn't able to build a side. It was in the doldrums. Newcastle were going absolutely nowhere. The, the place was as flat as it's possible to be. So the idea that the most charismatic footballer um, in England, uh, who had just finished second top of the old first division with Southampton, who was captain of England, it had twice been European Footballer of the Year, should voluntarily sign for Newcastle was just outrageous. It it would have just been laughed out of the water. Um, And Newcastle fans weren't expecting anything like that. I mean, how quick did the deal happen? Was it over a matter of days, a matter of weeks of the rumours From going talking to Keegan in London, which they did in a secret meeting before he went out to um, uh, Southampton, uh, to uh, Holland, um, it took 36 hours for Newcastle to do the deal in London from uh, agreeing terms, which was the easy bit, because you either pay the 100,000, which is the figure, or you don't. But dealing with him on his wages um, and the cleverness there was having uh, Scottish and Newcastle breweries down with him who uh, topped up. They put in as much as Newcastle United put in, so the overall package was totally acceptable to Keegan. Um, so it was done within 36 hours, but then he ha- he was committed to going to Holland and playing in this game because of the 15 grand, etc. And then he flew straight back here. So the deal was so quick, it was untrue. And Keegan has always been and remains to this day one of the greatest PRs I've ever known. Um, and all great PRs are PRs for 
that are superb for the club, but really they're superb for themselves. And in promoting himself, he promoted Newcastle United, but he was a great PR for himself. And when he walked in the room, when he signed for Newcastle, and he walked in that press conference, and he's got the Newcastle United tie on, and he's captain of England, and he's got Newcastle tie on, sits down, says all the right things, and then what do you want to do to make certain the Geordies love you? He announces, which wasn't generally known and certainly wasn't known up here, that, that his dad, Joe Keegan, was in fact a Geordie who uh, had lived up here, was born in Hetton Hall. I'm certain a lot of people in Hetton Hall would call themselves Mackhams, not Geordies, but he said he was a Geordie, so I accept he must have been... Uh, uh, he must have been our way rather than the Sunderland way. Uh, but Joe Keegan, he'd only left the northeast because of the pits that were closing down left, right and centre to go to Doncaster for work. And his granddad, uh, Kevin's granddad, had been in the Stanley Pit disaster, was a survivor of it, uh, years before that. So all of a sudden, you talk about being a great PR, but he walks out there, he's coming to Geordieland, he's the greatest player in England at the time, he says, oh, and by the way, I'm actually a Geordie, my dad's a Geordie, my, grandfather, my granddad was one of the heroes of a pit disaster up here. Game setting match. Now, as not just a reporter, but as a as a fan, when you first heard these rumours and you're thinking it's Kevin Keegan, you know, two European Player of the Year awards, countless league titles. Oh, are you are you thinking right? I've heard some stories in my time, but this is taking the biscuit without a shadow of doubt. When I first heard, because the other word on the grapevine was that he Manchester United wanted. Well, first of all, you're thinking it's it's Kevin Keegan. I mean, you know, this is absolutely not going to happen. It was like, well, there was rumours about Wayne Rooney not so long ago, wasn't it? Um, you know, when he was in his pomp with England. That was never going to happen. That was set up by Freddie Shep to, to help uh, another club get him out of Manchester, uh, out of Everton. Um, that was never going to happen. This, you suspected when you first heard, was never going to happen. Then when you heard the other club in was Man U, you thought, well, it's definitely not going to happen. Um, and he did speak to Manchester United. The only two clubs he spoke to were Manchester United and Newcastle United. But because he's always been clever, Kevin, and, you know, you go to Manchester United and you do what's been done many times. You come to Newcastle as a player where you've got huge crowds Mad, mad passion, and you've won nothing for donkey's years. Even in those days, we hadn't. You're going to play in the second division, which he'll dolly, even though he's in his 30s, because pace-wise, the pace isn't quite the same as the top flight. And he comes out with this wonderful PR thing about he's really a Geordie. You know, he's not from, from Scunthorpe. Uh, he's really a Geordie. Um, no, I couldn't believe it. It was only... You were beginning to half believe it, but when you talk to Laurie Mack, and he tells you, for the first time, confirmation from anywhere, what plane he's on in Newcastle, etc., you know, and this, the feeling of excitement at not only getting Kevin Keegan, but getting that sort of scoop, because that is what I call a scoop. No, um, the, you know, the scoops are hard to get these days because everything's announced to the whole world in one fell swoop by a club. In those days, you were more or less on your own. You missed on your own and you got stories on your own. And that was a massive... I mean, two of the major scoops I had was Keegan coming here as a player and Keegan coming here as a manager at the start of the entertainers. Um, so... 
you, I owe him a lot from that point of view. Um, and of course, the next day after the press conference, the queues started. They couldn't sell season tickets for the for the start of the season because we, you know, everything had been a, such a disaster. Uh, and all of a sudden, there was queues from seven o'clock in the morning outside of St James's Park wanting to get in for the game on Saturday, the first game of the season. Did you wake up the next morning after you, you know you put the the print print out there and you thought? Is this, is this real? For a split second, yeah, I woke up and thought, bloody hell, that did happen, isn't it? Because if it didn't, I've off gone out on a limb with a story <laughs> I carried in last night's papers in. The, the, the England skipper had signed for second division Newcastle United. Um, but in, it was the tingle that, that you had. Um, because in, he, he was always a man of drama. You would think that he stage managed things. You would think he was a Hollywood sort of film director. I mean, first of all, he, he, he tells you he's a Geordie. Then he scores the only goal on his debut against QPR, a game to win 1-0. And QPR were that good. They were in the promotion shake-up at the end of the season. And then in his last game, two years later, for Newcastle, he, he scores again. Um, everything that he, he did turned... To gold, um, and the amazing thing with the part of the deal, by the way, when he signed for Newcastle United, and he had this money topped up by Scottish Newcastle Blues. Alistair Wilson, the boss of Scottish Newcastle Blues, become a very, very good friend of, of uh, Kevin's. Um, and part of the deal was that he would go round their social clubs, say once a week, and do a roadshow, which is. Still doing to this day with. How are you doing there? It is David from the David McWilliams podcast, and this is a Staycast from Acast. We're all following the government's advice right now. We're staying in. It's a little bit cocooning, but it's all working. So while you're staying at home, here's a recommendation of another great podcast. It's the Blind Boy podcast. He's an old mate. He's a great skin. He has extraordinarily interesting views of the world. Check it out. Off his own bat. And he was truly magnificent. And the interesting thing was the breweries had me to do, to be with him on the road show. It was me and him. I was the one there to interview him. So every week I went, we went to a different Newcastle night at Pubbock, Newcastle Brewery's Pub or Club to do a show and it would start at 7 o'clock and finish at 11 o'clock and there was only 20 minutes break in the whole thing and it was only Keegan with me, there was nobody else and then 11 o'clock when he come off stage instead of going home he would sit on the front of the stage and get everybody to line up in it like snakes waiting his, his line of his snake-like line to come up and get his autograph and he would sit there after midnight uh, in a place where he never had a pint, didn't drink Sat and drank orange juice, etc. But he, his cleverness was was absolutely phenomenal. And uh, the interesting thing as well, Andrew, was that his debut day, QPR, uh, Bobby Robson, who was going uh, the best two managers we've had in modern times since Joe Bobby Robson had just been appointed England manager, and bear in mind that Kevin King was the England skipper. And the first thing Bobby Robson did when he was appointed England manager, was come to St James's Park to see Kevin Keegan's debut, 
1-0 to Newcastle, Keegan gets a goal. Now, Geordies were in 7-7, weren't they? They've got, they've got the England manager is a Geordie. They've got the skipper of Newcastle is, is the England captain, etc., etc. What's the first thing Bobby does with his first England team? Drops Kevin Keegan totally from the, from the squad. Now, it's interesting because Keegan, obviously, he's got a new book out and he's been doing a lot of publicity. Yes, he has. Uh, he was on Five Live around about the time of the book launch and he was speaking about that day. And he said Robson went down, he saw him after the game, he said, oh, brilliant, brilliant game, brilliant performance. Um, and pretty much suggested to him that he will be in the next squad. Mm. And Keegan didn't get so much as a, as a phone call to, to say. No. Well, it was the, it was the ruthless side of, of Bobby. Um and by the way, KK did a lot of that himself when he became a manager, you know. Good managers do. Good managers do. Uh, oh, I remember getting the quotes of Bobby uh, uh, after the game. This was one of the greatest events in my hometown and I had to be here. I wouldn't have been anywhere else today. The occasion was wonderful, etc., etc. Uh, and Bob was like KK. He was great at, at, at handling um, quotes and... Uh, but he knew, he watched him and he went away and thought about it and he thought two things. First of all, the first signs were there that KK's legs were going, that he wasn't quite had the pace, etc. And second, he realised that every week he was going to be playing in the second division, not the top flight. He's going to be playing Oxford United, not Manchester United. And he just felt that, that, that he had enough to be the superstar and the pie piper of Newcastle United, but not of England. And what you've got to remember, Andrew, is that two years later when Kevin Keegan decided to, to quit playing, he got up and said that one of the reasons was Newcastle played in the Milk Cup, which is the old League Cup, at Liverpool, his old ground. They'd been drawn away, he said, and this ball was played in the midfield. I had a five-yard start over 20 yards, and I got there second. He said, and when that happened, I realised that if I went and played in the first division, I no longer had the legs to be the star that I had been. Do you think when he joined... He knew that that was the case. He knew that his legs were starting to perhaps go. And because I think he th in in the long term, he knew Bobby's decision was the right one. Oh, I mean, he couldn't help but think that. Because, I mean, the emotion of the thing. Bob wasn't going to come in, watch him, and then say, oh, I didn't think he played well enough today. His legs are gone, is he? He's not going to do that. Um, and I, th I think it hurt Kevin at, at the time. And Kevin was is a very unforgiving guy if if he gets um, uh, rather tucked up. Um, but with hindsight, yes. I, I, I mean, he chose Newcastle ahead of Manchester United. And now I know he's supposed to be a Geordie and I know it's a sleeping giant and I know that he'd become a world superstar, but you would think, I mean, at least when, um, when Shearer chose Newcastle United ahead of Manchester United. Um, we were second top of the best division in the world. We were nearly second bottom of the second division when Keegan... I think Keegan and his heart knew his legs had gone, knew he could still be a huge, huge star here, get another two years um, out of it and become a legend for all time, which he did. And I think both men... Well, right, and I think Kevin knew it, and Kevin knew it himself when he went 18 months later to Liverpool. So, off the field, um, why did he join Newcastle? Was it because he'd seen the passion for him? You know, they played 
in the FA Cup final yeah. in 74. Yeah. Keegan yeah. was quite uh, feisty in that game. Yeah, um, yeah. But do you think that was what it was? It was because, he, he, like you say, he played at Liverpool, he felt that fan connection. Without a, and a, without a shadow of doubt. I mean, he'd been at Liverpool, he played against us at Wembley, he'd played against us in the old First Division up here. He knew how passionate the fans were. He did, in all fairness, have this Geordie background, so there, there, there was that sort of feeling. And it was going to be a slightly easier ride um, in the second division than in the top flight. And I think Southampton had gone second top and finished second top, you know, of the old first division with him in the side and um, Shelton and good side, Shannon, I think. Uh, but it was genteel in the crowd, the dell, it it would walk around the city. There's n- there wasn't the football buzz in Southampton that there was in Liverpool, that there was in Newcastle, that there had been in Hamburg. And I think you just... If you get a superstar, I mean, Pavarotti didn't want to go and play uh, high spend social club. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. I've been there a few times, but Pavarotti just felt he, it was perhaps not quite where, where he was pitching himself. And I think KK realised he could come to Newcastle in a passionate, passionate area, be totally responsible for taking them back into the big time, which he was, and leave on a high, have a reputation in Newcastle as big as it had been in Liverpool and as big as it had been in Hamburg uh, without putting his ability at risk. And I think he deliberately took out Manchester United and went for us for that very reason because he had a, always had a sixth sense of what was good for Kevin Keegan. On a national scale, I mean, what was what was the reaction? Because, like you say, they'd finished Southampton had finished second. Keegan had a very good season. I mean, couldn't it, I mean people couldn't believe it, and everybody was scratching heads and trying to find ulterior motives. And I'm talking about the press as well as the national press as well as the. I mean, we were playing in the old second division, getting nowhere fast, and the press box was packed out on the on the Saturday against QPR. Normally it wouldn't be. Every Nash, they were coming up from Fleet Street, from London in London to watch Newcastle play QPR in the second division on the opening Saturday, rather than going to Manchester United or Liverpool or to watch Spurs play or two. It's because they wanted to see Keegan and what this was all about. And I mean, the atmosphere was absolutely phenomenal. The game was relatively average because um, Keegan was. A huge star, and there was ten from the chorus line with him, and that's utmost respect. The boys who some of the boys who really blossomed once Keegan arrived, but uh, but it was almost inevitable once Keegan. You knew that he would score the winning goal, the same as he scored on in his last game, and then got lifted off the centre of the field in his black and white gear, not having taken his football gear off at all, in a helicopter in the centre of the pitch and, and shot off to Gosford Park Hotel. I mean, drama dripped wherever the man was and, and, and all was dead. So go into a bit more of detail about about the day, about the debut that he had, mm. about the atmosphere and the ground around the city. Just just paint a picture for, for those listening. It, it was almost like a throwback to... The great occasions. You can pinpoint in Newcastle's history 
the great occasions which stirred his city, going way back to the 50s team with Jackie Milburn. Jackie Milburn st stirred his city. When Supermac came and signed for Newcastle, a 21-year-old, never having played in the first division, arrived in a Rolls Royce uh, and got out the back, chauffeur-driven, you knew you were in the presence of somebody special. When Keegan came, captain of England. I mean, Supermac was a 21-year-old, never played in the top flight. This fellow was the captain of England, for goodness sake, come join us. When Shearer come back home in more recent times and had won the Premier League title with Blackburn and came and played for Newcastle United, you knew that day you were witnessing something special. You knew the day that um, Supermac come, even though you was a kid. The flamboyance of a 21-year-old sitting in the back of a Rolls Royce being chauffeur driven by a fella in a picky cap. He's not going to collapse. He's not going to be Jocelyn. He's going to be a star. And you knew it. With Keegan was already that star. But you knew he'd be able to do it. And the excitement. Um, and the wonderful thing is that it didn't matter how long it took him, he would never snub the fans. I mean, he would he, he would get to the ground at 12 o'clock because he knew after parking his car, he wouldn't be in the dressing room till half past one for signing autographs on the way. And that's how much the fans wanted him. And he did it and he knew it was good for the club, but it was also good for Kevin Keegan. It was good PR and he was very, very clever. And the whole city wore Kev. The whole city literally took off. We couldn't get promotion the first season because... The rest of the side, quite frankly, wasn't good enough. And he had only signed on a one-year contract because, again, he was a very astute boy. And he he loved Arthur Cox. Arthur Cox become his dad in football terms. Um, and Arthur was the reason that he signed for Newcastle. But he didn't know how much the board would back Arthur Cox, how much the board would back him. And he held all the, the aces, so he only signed for one year and it. Towards the end of that year, Newcastle had to do something about it. Now, remember, he gave me in the April, towards the end of that season, he gave me an exclusive interview with the Corn in which he said, I will sign another contract for Newcastle, but only if the buy the players Arthur Cox wants so that we can win promotion. And if Arthur Cox goes, I go as well. And you can say he was putting a gun to the head, but he was just telling the truth. That's the way it was. And he was in a unique position to do that. And he signed a new contract, but he was even clever then because um, he always thought, will directors renege? Because some directors have a history of doing that. So his new contract, which again, he, he, he let out publicly, because he's a very clever boy, he's wanting to say this is the parachute and warn the board. By the way, the fans know, you know. So if he, in, in, he signed for one more year, which would have allowed, which was when promotion was gained. But written into his contract was that if he decided to go at Christmas, they had to let him go and the uh, transfer fee would be 75000 If he, bear in mind there wasn't windows then, he could go. If he went between Christmas and the end of the season, that would let him go, and the fee would be 50000 And at the end of the season, he'd get a free. Uh, so he had a parachute the whole time if Newcastle didn't do what Cox wanted them to do and what he wanted them to do, because he knew the time was against him 
and he knew he wanted to finish with a promotion to take them up, and they did that. And the interesting thing, you know, um, was they really made some big decisions to do that because there was a centre-forward at Newcastle in Kevin's first season called Ray Verotti who could catch pigeons so fast, could catch pigeons, scored a pile of goals because he was quick, uh, but he couldn't trap a bag of cement. Um, his control of the ball, bless him, was very, very average. He was just quick and could shoot, but control. Now, Keegan loved to play quick, one-touch, intricate football um, and wanted to play that way. And, and he said privately to Arthur Cox, look, if we are going to go up, I've got to have a partner that's cleverer and better than this guy that's on my wavelength and has a, a beautiful touch we can build up stuff. And Arthur said, right, I'll do something about it. Um, I mean, Ray Verardi was decimated in tears when he was transferred from Newcastle. Went to Sheffield and continued to score goals. But, he, but Newcastle went and got Peter Beardsley to replace Ray Verardi. And I remember Kevin Keegan saying to me, who the hell is this kid? Who is he? Never heard of him. When it when he joined Newcastle, you heard of him since. He brought him back to Newcastle when he was a when he was a manager. Didn't know what he was, and he said to me afterwards, he said, "Gibbo, I never heard him from Vancouver Whitecaps. A little Geordie kid from Vancouver Whitecaps. Never done anything over here. We'd only played for Carlisle." He said, and "I'm thinking, oh dear me." And then so he arrived, and he was as small as me, and I'm thinking, "Oh, this is going to be." Terrific, like he said, and then I suddenly play with him in training and I play with him on the Saturday. And I thought, Thank you, God, this is the man that I was asking for. And we had a forward line, you know, that didn't have a centre forward. We had Keegan, Waddle, and Beardsley. There wasn't an orthodox Alan Shearer, Les Ferdinand, Super Mac, Jackie Milburn centre forward in that three, and it just interwoven, interchanged the whole time. And of course, in that team as well, Terry Mack, a, a oh. great friend of, of Keegan's. Uh, yeah, yes, absolutely. I mean, um, Terry, Terry Mack became one of his greatest friends and come back with him, of course, when, when as did Beardsley when, it, when he came back. Uh, and that they had terrific times together. I mean, the... They, uh, Terry Mack was a bubbling character. You wouldn't, he wasn't at all a Kevin Keegan type of a character. Um, the only thing they had in common, they both loved the horses. Uh, and that was a real thing they had in common. They loved uh, horse racing. They would have bets together, etc., etc. But, um, you know, one loved to drink and wasn't adverse to a night in a nightclub. And the other one, I doubt if he had seen the inside of a nightclub, apart from if he was actually doing a show there and was a non-drinker but he was like a pie piper once he come to Newcastle everybody wanted to come to Newcastle we got David McCreary they played for Manchester United we got Glenn Roder who went on to skip in Newcastle we got Terry Mack Peter Beersley was a kid that come but the others were already big names Waddle blossomed from being a kid out of Tau Law that was playing for Newcastle as if he had all the troubles of the world with a sack of coals on his shoulders. He was the ugly duckling that became a swan. And the three of them together playing up front were quite exceptional. And really we had a steady away defence, John Anderson and uh, 
Carney and Kevin Carr and goal. Um, but the three forwards, we still only went up in third place. We didn't win the championship. We went up in third place, but we went up because we had forwards. Two kids, a huge talent, Geordie kids, who become England superstars in a bloke that was already an England superstar. No centre forward. The only height was Waddle, who didn't play through the middle, played on the wing, and they were terrific. So when Keegan first arrived, just to sum up this kind of section of this podcast, can you just explain how Newcastle dealt with having such a talent in the team when the rest of the team, no disrespect intended, wasn't anywhere near Keegan's level? Because from going from being a sub-average team to then having this world superstar, it must have been a difficult one for, for Cox to, to kind of manage. I, I think it was, but I mean, Cox very quickly become his total mentor and the two of them become inseparable. And again, when KK come back to Newcastle with the entertainers, he brought Arthur Cox went back, to England as, behind as the as scenes well. and he, went, he, he took Arthur everywhere with him. And I think the difficulty... I mean, Arthur knew that he, he couldn't just get Keegan, stick him in that side and go and light a cigar and wait for Newcastle to be promoted because he needed other players in. He gambled on the charisma of Keegan getting the other players in and he gambled on the, the young players Newcastle had developing hugely under Kevin. And they did, but at first it was great trouble, you know. People like Chris Waddle found it very tough when he first come to the club, Keegan, because he was just overawed by who Keegan was and, uh, you know, and, and found it very difficult to bloom and it was the second season uh, that made it happen. But getting people in like Terry McDermott to come and, and play, um, I mean, they were, they were crazy, the pair of them t- together, I mean, did all sorts of daft things, wacky things. I mean, they... They got one day they went to training and they got they put on camouflage gear, you know, like the army do, and crawled through the bushes at the training ground to 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 come out just as the boys were going training and and uh, Coxie was shouting where the hell's Terry and KK and all that and they come out from under the bushes with all this gear on and false little ratatat Tommy guns and I mean crazy things and Terry Mac got dressed up one day was in the back of his car. He told me he was going to do it, so I, I got a snap up there uh, to get a photograph of him, which is probably in our files. Uh, he, he got dressed up in the car in a whole Arabs outfit, long before the Arabs that own the clubs now, like Manchester City, etc., etc. But they always had huge money. And he got dressed up as an Arab, knocked on the chairman's door. Stan Seymour Jr. says, come in. And he walked in with his head down with the full robes on and then sat down and said he'd, he'd come to uh, sign Kevin Keegan um, and money was no object. And Seymour turned absolutely white because he thought if this sort of money, he didn't know even know which club it was at this stage, but if this sort of money wants Kevin Keegan, if Kevin finds out he'll want to go and be, I won't be able to stop it and say my club will be absolutely nugget if, if Keegan walks here. And it was only when he sort of lifted his head as they were shaking hands after he'd made an announcement and he saw it was, it was Terry Mack. Um, and they did all sort of Laurel and Hardy stuff like that. I mean, simple 
jokey stuff, not necessarily sophisticated, but good fun, and quickly endeared themselves. And the, the team spirit then, there wasn't a nothing name camp. I mean, when they had somebody like Keegan in and they were playing in the second division, they were so grateful to have him. And you, you suddenly woke up and you thought, I'm going to benefit by having it because Newcastle are going to start winning things and I'm going to be part of that and I'm going to get the win bonuses, etc., uh, etc. Et and all of a sudden, what's in it for me? And the answer is plenty. Um, and, and I think so the players very quickly realised that this was was the way ahead. Some promotion was, was gains and then Keegan flew off in his helicopter with... I think there's always images of Alan Shearer as a ball boy as well, mulling around in, in some of them games. Um, just again, paint a picture of what it was like on that final day when when Keegan scored, and then got on the helicopter and, and, and flew off for the yeah. last time. I mean, the amazing thing is just saying, uh, we said, Andrew, about uh, this guy's sense of timing, his sense of drama, his sense of theatre. He'd announced, after that incident at Liverpool in the Mill Cup, when he got over he'd announced that he was retiring at the end of the season. Now it hit the town like a sledgehammer because we were, it was in, we were still in the throes of trying to win promotion. But what did he do? To say that his love affair with Newcastle United was about to come to an end, he announced it on St Valentine's Day that the love affair was, and it had to come to an end with a wonderful... Climax. He announced on St Valentine's Day, which also just happened to be his birthday. So you, you, can you imagine the draw? He just his timing on everything was perfect. In that day, while there was a huge sadness for me personally that we were going to lose my superstar, who was totally responsible. I mean, this guy. I mean, he took all the free kicks, he scored all the goals, he took the throw-ins. There was nothing he didn't do in the match for uh, at that time. And, you know, you're thinking, oh, he's going to go, but isn't it awful? And then my second thought was, this is KK. We are now guaranteed promotion. He's, he's just the luckiest guy around, but he, it isn't luck. He makes, you make your own luck. But you knew that day, and you almost knew he'd score in the last game, and of course he did. Um, and went off in the helicopter. And I mean, it was the sheer drama, the sheer theatre of it. I mean, men, 60-year-old men with tears streaming down the face. He did a lap of honour. He went round the track at St James's Park, not on the pitch, so that he could shake hands. You couldn't see him by the end of the, the, the lap of honour because he had so many black and white scarves around his neck that were right up above his ears. Um, a, a, and a cap on and black and white hat on and the, the, the drama, the theatre of it was absolutely wonderful. Um, I've got to say, because a lot of fans might remember, we had our one major fallout, me and him, at that time. Um, and it was really down to the club, but KK went along with it. I had been approached to do a book um, as the local guy on this fairy tale story of the player that had come to Newcastle United when he shunned it done and, you know, took them from the depths of despair back to the promised land. That's a, so I went to see KK, and it, it was me writing it, not, but I didn't want to write it without KK's permission. So I went up and sat in his room with him at the Gossip Pocatel. He was living in the Gossip Pocatel. I said, look, I've been opposed to this book. I won't do it if you don't want me to do, etc., etc." He said, Gibbo, more than happy, more than delighted. You'll be okay. You'll know you do it. One proviso, 
I don't want to be giving interviews to you every three days for the book, and uh, I won't do any promotional work when it comes out, but you can have it with my blessing, and then he gave me numbers of at people at Scunny that he'd worked for and, and the school teachers and all that. And off I went and wrote the book. Now, in the meantime, while all this is happening, Kevin makes his announcement on St. Valentine's Day that he's about to retire at the end of the season. Newcastle United suddenly think, oh, the Golden Goose is going. We've got to cash in on this. We'll last to before we lose him. So we're going to bring out all this memorabilia and gifts to mark his going away, etc., etc. Suddenly realised, halfway through doing this, that my book was so far advanced and was just about to come out at the end of that season that they couldn't rush something out quicker because you, the phys- in terms of a book, because they physically couldn't. So just by a fluke, I was sort of quids in with this book. So they asked KK if he would distance himself from the book to try to hit the sales of my book and put it down so everybody buy their memorabilia because they were going to buy the Kevin Keegan book because it was almost the farewell book of all time. Uh, KK, the only thing I felt sorry for was KK agreed to go along with it. Um, I can understand how he backed the book, how he backed the club, but having given me permission. And he drew a press conference when I wasn't there and said that he he didn't know about the book and it uh, it wasn't an official book, bloody, bloody, blah, which is what the club had asked him to do. I was absolutely decimated because I'd worked all the shows with him on stage with him, etc., etc., and he'd actually given permission. Now, there's two ways of handling Kevin. He's a superhero. You're not going to beat him in the PR stakes, etc., etc. So you either go away or cry, or you think, no, I'll fight my corner because I ought. So I took the next day off work at the Crown, and I booked myself into all the television studios and the radios, and I went round and gave my side the story about how uh, we'd sat in the Gosford Park, etc., etc. It book come out. Book was a great success. Ironically, I was going to work with Keegan almost for the rest of time because he come back and managed Newcastle, managed the entertainers. I was part of the Magpie Group that that brought him up here, and he then went on to to manage England. One of my beats was to follow England, so I was with him again, and I've done shows with him. I was with him a couple of weeks back. Friendship has friendship has uh, survived it. Um, as far as I'm concerned, it's forgiven, but it's not forgotten. It was naughty. KK is always liable to be naughty, and if he thinks Bobby Robson was naughty with him. He was naughty with me. It happens. It's called football. So, so just briefly, did you? How did you? Did did you get an apology, or how did the friendship then survive? In such well, a you, you, it did survive, but um, you've got to remember this was at the end. The book was coming out, and and this was at the end of the season. So he was already on his way when this hit the fan, and um, so he sort of went. And that was it. And then we bumped into each other months later and it was, hey, let's be friends. And then, of course, you've got to remember that as a member of the Magpie group, they put John, which I was, they put John Hall into power. Then John Hall went to get Kevin Keegan. Then Kevin Keegan realises that not only am I a great mate of the Germans, but I was part of the group that put him in power. He needs me as an enemy, like a hole in the head, doesn't he? So it, it, it was almost a forcing of the situation. And 
I've got to say, um, I sometimes think we look in each other's eyes and we can both see that we both remember that day, but we've forged a, a good relationship. And let me stress that those things happen in football and I still put Keegan right on the top of the pile as one of the greatest things that happened to Newcastle along with Bobby Robson, Shearer, Supermac, Jackie Mulgrave. How are you doing there? It is David from the David McWilliams podcast and this is a Staycast from Acast. We're all following the government's advice right now. We're staying in. It's a little bit cocooning, but it's all working. So while you're staying at home, here's a recommendation of another great podcast. It's the Blind Boy podcast. He's an old mate. He's a great skin. He has extraordinarily interesting views of the world. Check it out.